Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for, and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I, of course, cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners, and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions, because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. And we're back. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. Uh, my name is Kirk Reed. Uh, I am joined this morning uh, by special guest, Brian Fecto uh, of Delaney and Muncie, uh, estate planning attorneys in North Plymouth. Uh, good morning, Brian. Good morning, Kirk. Great to be here today. Thank you again. Um, well, we haven't got any callers yet, but I'll give out the number again, 781-837-4900. Uh, if you have an estate planning question or any financial planning question, uh, please give us a call. Uh, so right before the break, uh, we were just starting to kind of talk about uh, revocable trusts. Uh, and so far, we've kind of touched on, you know, one of the main benefits is avoiding probate uh, for any asset that's uh, titled in the name of, of the trust. Um, and so I think we're going to kind of chat about some of the other, you know, reasons that you might you might uh, use a revocable trust for estate planning needs. That's right, uh, Kirk. Um, so, so revocable trust and trust in general, uh, they have a lot of benefits beyond just the probate avoidance. In fact, if, if you came to me and that was really the only reason you needed a trust, I might work with you on other strategies, uh, such as joint titling of assets, beneficiaries different things we could do to try to minimize the probate hassles. But um, but that is, probate avoidance is one way that we use trust. But another uh, reason that we use trust often is you may have a circumstance where if you pass away, your beneficiaries aren't quite ready to get a full outright inheritance. And I'm talking about situations where you have perhaps minor children. That's a big one I see in my practice every day. You may have adult children who have uh, spending issues, uh, marriage issues, uh, sadly substance abuse issues, perhaps a disability of some sort. There's a lot of reasons why an, an immediate inheritance might be a bad idea uh, in your estate plan. And trusts are a great tool for that uh, because a trust can continue for uh, years after your death, managing funds for your beneficiaries and distributing it them to them uh, wisely at the appropriate times and on your instructions rather than just a big fire hose all at once. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'll talk about one... one um, 
common client uh, profile I see, which is a couple maybe in their 30s or early 40s. They're still uh, building their net worth, so they might not have a, a large net worth that would justify needing complicated trust, but they have uh, you know, three minor children who are you know, maybe in their, still in elementary school. God forbid something happens to mom and dad, I don't want that money going outright to 10-year-olds. And I don't necessarily want it to go outright um, under a will where the guardians may end up having to report to the probate court for the next several years. And then at age 18, which is the age of majority, but not necessarily the age of maturity, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the kids would come into that money with, with no restrictions You know, at 18 or 21. So by using a trust, I can set up a situation where should the unthinkable happen and both parents pass away, you know, an uncle or a grandparent or a close family friend can be set up and slot in as successor trustee. All those funds can, all the funds that collect from the death of the two parents can come into that trust and then be used for, you know, all the needs of the children while they're children can be used for college can remain, you know, in trust after college while those kids kind of get on their feet. You know, we're not trying to deprive the children of this money. We're just trying to make sure that it's used wisely. At any time, the children would be able to go to their uncle or their uh, grandfather or close friend and say, I'd like some money to buy a house or start a business or um, buy a car. But the grandfather, the wise uncle would be able to say, are you sure you need a BMW? How about that Camry? Or, you know, are you sure this is the best? You know, I haven't seen a business plan on your buddy's uh, great idea. Are you sure we really should invest this money for that purpose? So it's really just a way for the um, people that are no longer with us to make sure that their kids are taken care of and that the funds don't disappear too early. And Unless there's some reason to do so, we will usually set an age around 25, 30, or 35, somewhere where the children who are, would then be adults would receive, you know, an outright distribution. Whatever's, so, yeah, whatever's left, yeah. Okay. So the money's not necessarily tied up for life, just trying to get them through those, uh, you know, er, the early part in life. And also, you know, make them have to establish their own career, make their own way. And not just have a you know a, a trust fund that takes care of them and and they never you know launch right so. right yeah get them through the those maturation years so they can hopefully um, yeah be a little more reasonable in their own thought processes and you know what's what's needed and what's not right uh, that's I th- yeah it makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you also mentioned like um, you also mentioned like disability, so I mm-hmm. know that there are you know, special needs trusts, you know, which basically, mm-hmm. you, you know, you kind of touched on if, um, you know, if you have a, a, a child, you know, either young or, or adult child that has, you know, has a disability of some, uh, uh, some, you know, level that requires perhaps aid, uh, right? That's another way to, you know, kind of protect assets so that they can still qualify for, uh, for state uh, state aid. Yeah, that's right. So you can do that either in a separate supplemental needs trust or right within your own revocable trust, which would be to set up um, a situation where those assets will be available to handle those needs not being paid by different government assistance and government benefit programs without the wealth causing you know a disqualification. So that that's a very complicated area of law, but it's one we deal with. Um, certainly from time to time. And uh, the idea there is we don't, for, for some people, an inheritance would almost make things worse. Huh. Um, if yeah, you have, yeah. if you're in certain programs and you're doing well, you'd hate to say, well, now that you've inherited half a million dollars, you no longer qualify right. for all of these programs. And so you're on your own. Um, that's not a good use of wealth. Um, better to have it set up so that half a million can be there to provide support and you may not use all of it, but that the, the, the uh, disabled child or disabled person would still be able to participate in those benefit programs that they're that they're getting. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've always um, wondered about is, and I I know this is just kind of a funny term, but you know, what's out there as far as like 
trust police. <laughs> There's really nothing like that, right? No, there really is no public authority that's yeah. out there making sure that these the terms of these trusts are all being carried out. Certainly, any beneficiary uh, has rights under the Uniform Trust Code to information. They have rights to accountings from the trustees. And they also would have rights to, you know, bring litigation against the trustee if they felt like the trust terms weren't being, um, you know, weren't weren't being carried out. So being a trustee is a, uh, it's a difficult job. You're charged with, you know, you're held to a fiduciary standard. You're not only supposed to be investing the money wisely, you are supposed to be making wise decisions on distributions and certainly following the terms of the trust. Um, Oftentimes, family members, I'll find, will will not take a fee, uh, believe it or not, which I think is very generous because it is a it's a it's a real job. Yeah, um, can be very time consuming. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. and and stressful. Right. Um, now it is it is possible to hire a professional trustee. Yes, that's right. Uh, there are professional trustees, accountants, attorneys. Uh, we do a little bit of it, but there's also. Um, you know, trust companies, and that's what they do. Uh, and you'll you'll find trust departments and trust companies within local banks, uh, different financial institutions. That uh, you may have a corporate trustee mm-hmm. that's available if clients really need it through your custodian that you work with. So, um, for people that just don't have the right person, you know, the person that they not only trust but also has a you know decent sense of financial matters, investments, and the like, uh, a corporate trustee can be uh, a good option. Of course, a corporate trustee is not going to work for free. Right? Can Can you speak to what that might cost? Just kind of you know, general, you know. Yeah, it's it's usually it's it's similar to. Um, fees you might pay for financial planning. Uh, You know, it's usually around uh, a percentage of assets under management, you know, one one to 2% Mm -hmm. oftentimes, depending on the size. Okay. Is usually the fee you'll see. The, the, the trouble we sometimes see with the corporate trustee is that a corporate trustee is usually tied to some investment institution and they typically want to bring the assets under their umbrella. Right. So uh, we have to think about that if you're working with someone like Kirk, but you name a local bank as the corporate trustee, you know, that bank may not be willing to leave the assets with Kirk, and so that yeah. that has yeah. to be coordinated. Yeah. Okay. But sometimes it's a it's a great last resort if there's no uh, family member that um, you know makes a lot of sense to to be that. Um. So all right, do you want to jump into irrevocable trusts, or do you have something else? Let's just talk a, a couple other reasons to use a revocable trust, and uh, one that, um, and maybe we can talk about it a little bit. Um, beyond that. A lot of people uh, that I talk to are worried about estate taxes, or they hear that term estate taxes, or what, what percentage of my estate am I going to lose to the IRS when I pass away? Mm-hmm. So why don't we go over that a okay. little bit? Because yep. there's a little bit that we can do with revocable trust to try to minimize that, at least at the state level. So most people out there... Um, as of right now in September of 2021, do not have much of a worry with the federal estate tax. So the federal estate tax right now only applies to estates over over $11.7 million per person. Per person. And for a married couple, there's a concept called portability, which effectively allows a married couple to double that. So we're talking estates north of $23 million. And... Um, so if you have an estate, a taxable estate, yes, it's a problem, but it's a problem I think many of us would love to have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, it's a, ter- it's a terrible problem. Yeah. Terrible problem, Brian. Yeah. So um, that's the federal government. And I think if you've been reading the papers or you watch the news, there is a lot going on in Washington right now around tax policy and tax changes. Mm-hmm. And the estate tax is one that is up there for discussion, and we're going to have to see what Congress does over the rest of this year. There is talk of bringing that number, cutting that number essentially in half, which would bring it from, for a married couple, from 23 down closer to 11 or 12. And is that, I mean, I know at this point it's just kind of in proposal stages, but is that, are they they trying to get that done for like next year? I think if Congress passed that, it would probably apply to death starting in 2022. Okay. But one never knows. Right, um, right. They could, 
they could uh, because a lot of returns for early for early deaths in 2021 are already due. It would be hard for them unless they pass this thing very soon to make it uh, apply to 2021 deaths. If uh, if if nothing happens, you know, and there's no changes, to, uh, basically, this will the current the current numbers will stand stand for next year and, and ongoing. That's right. The number right now, I think the the law is good through 2025 or 2026, as and it then stands. it's going to then as it stands, and then it will come up again at that point. Right now, it's 11.7, and it's indexed for inflation. So every year, the IRS raises it a little bit. I, you know, I was just kind of, um, I was kind of poking around, looking at some numbers and things, and you know, talking about how it how it go, goes up with inflation, and but it's gone up more than that in some years, uh, and it's gone, to, you know, gone up substantially, and so. And then it looks like so I I, I found back in 1980 mm-hmm. the federal exclusion amount was 161 thousand dollars. So it's you know it has gone up quite a bit, obviously through you know political things right. and you know people people uh, pumping it up. Um, so yeah, about about 20 years ago, I think the intent. Um from at least some in Congress that had power at the time was we're going to phase out the estate tax over time by making that exemption higher, 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 and eventually it's going to go away. Political winds shift. Mm-hmm. Um, that changed. Um, and now they've, they're shifted again. And so we're going to see if it comes back. I don't think it's going to come back to a level where... Um, your average sort of middle class or uh, even upper middle class person really has to worry about the federal estate tax number. But it is, if, if that law does go through, uh, we'll have some estates that are in that range that, that thought they were safe that no longer will be. Yeah, it's um, going to certainly affect more people than it, right. than it currently is. Um, yeah, I think right now there's, it's if you look at the number of estate tax returns filed federally in the country, it's a pretty small number. Okay. Might be couple thousand okay. nationwide just because yeah. that number is so high right yeah, now. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, makes sense. Now, beyond the uh, federal estate tax, um, here in Massachusetts, we're one of about 15 to 20 states that has a state estate tax. And so even if we're well under that federal number, we need to think about Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, the exemption level is not 11.7 million per person. It's 1 million per person. So we're finding, especially with the appreciation of real estate right. around greater Boston, even people that probably don't consider themselves wealthy enough to have a taxable estate, in fact, do here in Massachusetts. Um, the rate is quite a bit lower in Massachusetts than the federal rate, so it's not quite as painful. But just to give you, this is very rough, but you know, if you die with $2 million, uh, your heirs off the top before they take their inheritance will probably be writing a check somewhere around $100,000 to, or a little over $100,000 to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So on a percentage basis, that sounds small, but as you can imagine, signing a six-figure check <laughs> to the state right. is painful right. uh, for heirs. I uh, Yeah, so I was looking, you know, as you mentioned, there's somewhere in that 15 to 20 you know, states that are that do have a, a an estate tax. Uh, I found interesting. Just you know, FYI, New Hampshire and Florida do not. <laughs> so for anybody that's thinking about moving, uh, or, or uh, New Hampshire is really the only one in New England that does not. It looks like every every other one surrounding us does have something. Yes, I, I know a lot of the other New England states do have an estate tax, but many have a higher uh, exclusion amount. Oh, I so see. I think you know Maine, you'd have to be over five million before you have a taxable. I see. Uh, even Rhode Island, uh, I think, is at about 1.5 or 1.6, so a little bit better than us. Right. Um, but this is the, just like with all uh, tax moves, and I guess it's a the benefit of the federal system, if you're really the type of person that uh, lives your life based on you know minimizing taxes, <laughs> yep. plenty of people will establish residence out of state for purposes of, uh, you know, not just estate tax, but other taxes. So we'll, we'll see people, uh, you know, spend six plus months in Florida or in New Hampshire. Um, and one of the benefits of that is you may be able to limit your ma- exposure to that Massachusetts estate tax. When but c- you have to be willing to leave, which a lot of people don't want to live their life just based on yeah. tax avoidance. Yeah, that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But uh, unless you want to live somewhere else, just yeah. because. But does it? Um, 
can I ask you, like, does it matter, like, where the trust is established? Does that have any bearing on, you know, the estate tax? Uh, I wish it was that easy to just say, oh, we're going to, we're establishing this trust in Nevada, and therefore we're going to get these assets out. Uh, it would have to be a very specific type of trust where you really give up control of those assets for that to work. So mm-hmm. there's, that's not an easy fix. Um, cause they will look, uh, Massachusetts will count pretty much all your assets, whether they're in trust, whether it's a IRA, uh, real estate. Um, so some people will move to Florida and keep a, uh, continue to own a piece of real estate in Massachusetts and they would not owe the full estate tax, but Massachusetts is still able to get a little estate tax out of you because you kept that real estate here. So that gets complicated, but something we can talk about. I just wanted to you know, bring up the fact that federally, most people don't have to worry about estate taxes. But here in, in Massachusetts, it's something to, to, if you have a net worth uh, approaching or over that million dollar mark, you might want to talk to an attorney about what can be done about mm-hmm. it, um, event, short, of, short of moving. So tell, tell us, what can be done? <laughs> well, a few things. If you're married, what we can do is at least make sure that we use by using trust, make sure that we use both spouses' $1 million exclusion amount. So in a very basic situation where um, husband and wife have assets, husband dies first, he leaves everything to his wife, there's no tax on that first death, okay? So the Commonwealth is not looking for money from widows or widowers, okay? However, because there's no tax, you have haven't used any of the million dollar exclusion of that first spouse to die and you've effectively wasted it. Now on the second death, all the assets, when the, when the wife dies, all the assets are taxed in her estate and we only have her $1 million exclusion or exemption amount to use against that. By, ha- by, by having trust rather than having all assets passed directly to the surviving spouse, we can try to use up the million dollar exclusion or shelter a million dollars on the first death, another million on the second death. And so our goal then is to try to limit taxation to amounts over two million versus just amounts over one. So that's some marital trust planning that we can do with revocable trust in Massachusetts to not eliminate in all cases the estate tax, but at least try to bring it down, minimize it a little bit. Okay. So that's another, and that's uh, again, that's, that's another a, reason for using a trust, but it, depending on your circumstances. And, that, and is that still a revocable trust? That is still a revocable trust while you're both living. Uh, usually, the trust of the trust of the first spouse to die will become irrevocable upon their death. Okay. But I can typically have the spouse as at least one of the trustees of that uh, deceased spouse's trust. I can have the spouse's beneficiary. So the assets would still all be available to that surviving wife in her husband's trust. Um, it just wouldn't be directly in her name. Okay. So, okay. So, 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 so far in talking about revocable trusts, um, you know, we talked about uh, avoiding probate, um, protecting beneficiaries, uh, mm-hmm. either that have a disability or spending issues, or they're just too young to, to know what to do with the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then third thing is, you know, some, some estate tax planning uh, as far as maximizing uh, the Massachusetts uh, exemption. So, so three, so three pretty, uh, you know, pretty substantial benefits mm-hmm. uh, to, to using uh, a revocable trust. Was, uh, was there anything else on your list there for revocable? No, I think that's that's pretty much what I wanted to touch on okay. on the uh, on the revocable trust side. Okay. Yeah. So then we can really have some fun uh, when we come back here and and maybe talk about irrevocable trusts, uh, which are a whole nother level of excitement. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. And we can talk about, you know, pros and cons. Uh, so when we come back, uh, we'll be talking some more with Brian Fecto uh, of Delaney and Muncie uh, from uh, North Plymouth Estate uh, Planning Attorneys. Uh, the number here is 781-837-4900. If anyone would like to call into the studio for a question for Brian or myself, Uh, for estate planning or any financial planning uh, questions. Uh, So we'll be right back uh, after the break. Hi, this is Alyssa Reed with McNamara Financial in Marshfield. Your investment strategy should largely be determined by the amount of time you have before needing the money. If you are aggressively invested, time is your friend when it comes to your portfolio recovering from this scary stock market. If you need your invested money soon, it should have been conservative to begin with. If you're not sure how your money is invested, I'd be happy to offer my opinion. 781-834-2010. 
Okay, we are back. You're listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. My name is Kirk Reed. I am joined by Brian Fecto of Delaney and Muncie this morning. Uh, Delaney and Muncie is an estate planning firm uh, located in northern Plymouth. Um, number for callers is 781-837-4900. Uh, right before the break, we were talking about uh, revocable trusts and various uses. Uh, we were going to perhaps jump into irrevocable trusts and, and some of their uses uh, and also talking about um, you know some more estate tax issues. And, and, and I think, Brian, you said maybe we could talk about some gifting uh, examples and, and how to utilize, uh, utilize those. Sure. Uh, I think it'd be good to talk a little bit about gifting. I we I hear a lot of um, misconceptions out there on that on that mm-hmm. subject, and especially as it relates to gift tax and that sort of thing. So, uh, if you want to give assets to anyone, usually it's children, grandchildren, that sort of thing. The current federal law would allow you to give up to fifteen thousand dollars per person per year without any gift tax implications whatsoever, meaning you don't even have to report the amount of that gift to the IRS or to anyone else. And there are also some other exceptions to that. If you wanted to pay um, directly medical expenses for someone, if you wanted to pay college tuition for someone, you are not subject to that $15,000 limit. There are also some, um, and this is, I'm treading in your waters a little bit more here, Kirk, uh, with respect to 529 plans, there are some opportunities to gift into those, 529 plans being for college education. Uh, you can sort of front load those all at once. Right. I think you can do, what, 75000 I, uh, I think it's five years, five years. Worth, of, worth of the exclusion. Right. Yeah, so you could do seventy-five thousand yeah. at once. I think you're then you know you're kind of stuck for the next five years. But if you have that type of uh, amount that right. you want to gift and right. you and you'd like to get it in the market all at once, you can you can front load a five twenty-nine plan. Right. So sometimes, especially later in life, if people have a pretty good idea about what their needs are going to be, their financial needs, and they might be a little bit over that million dollar threshold for Massachusetts estate taxes, it would be wise of them to talk to their attorney or financial planner about putting in place some sort of gifting program to try to get them right under that threshold. So if I had a, um, if I had a client with $1,045,000, okay, and they had three children, it would be great if in the last year or two of life, they made some $15,000 gifts to those children and got down to 990000 Their formerly taxable estate is now not taxable. And, you know, the kids not only will receive the money a little bit early, they'd also avoid paying the Commonwealth, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 in estate taxes. Right. The, the, the rate, the rate, we didn't really talk about it, but the... The rate of tax for Massachusetts—it's a tiered schedule. Yeah, I think it, it's around fifteen or sixteen percent. Is kind of the high end. Is that? That's the very high right. end. I, yeah. I generally look at it around between sort of eight to ten. Okay. Generally, but um, you know, the most expensive dollar is the dollar that gets you from nine hundred ninety-nine thousand to right. a million. Right. Because once you hit that million you bring the whole amount into the equation. It's a very complicated formula, actually calculating it. It's not just apply this number against this rate, right. but... Um, but that's, isn't that very so interesting that it just, but just going over, you know, it really changes the, the landscape, yeah. Yeah, so sometimes, especially, again, you have to be comfortable and in, in, in a giving mood, but uh, if so, a lot of times gifting, even under that annual exclusion amount, can, um, can save quite a bit in estate taxes. So then a, a lot of people think, well, if I make a gift larger than 15000 then I have to pay gift tax. The other, back up one second, some people think if they receive a gift that it's income, that they now have to pay tax on that. That is not the case. The recipient of, of a gift does not have to pay tax. They have to pay tax on the earnings of that money once they have it, okay? But the actual- Or they can just spend it and or then they can not spend worry about it. it. Not have to worry about it. <laughs> 
but the receipt of a gift is not taxable. The giving of a gift over 15000 is reportable to IRS on a gift tax return. But that very high number that I gave you earlier, that $11.7 million, that's a unified gift and estate tax exclusion or credit. So if you want to give away $5 million while you're alive, you can. Okay, you have to report that because it's over fifteen thousand, but you won't actually owe any gift tax until you get over that eleven point seven million dollar figure. Now, when you die, your exclusion has been reduced because you used up some of it while you're alive. So that's why it's called a unified gift and estate tax uh, number. What about so that's for, that's on the federal level? What yeah. about what about Massachusetts? So there's no state gift tax, so you won't owe any current tax upon giving the money away. Massachusetts will require you to add back in for the estate tax calculation some of the giving you did over the $15,000 number. Um, There still can be some benefits because the way the formula works, when you add it back in, it's not taxed just as high. You also take out any future appreciation of what you gave away. Okay, right. Okay. So there are some some quote unquote benefits benefits to to, to doing that on on the state level as well. Yeah. Okay. So something to think about about gifting, and I think that's a good segue into the next topic, which would be irrevocable trust, which um, can be used for a number of reasons, and we certainly don't have enough time to talk about many of them. But one of the first ways that we see irrevocable trust use, if, if, if you have that giving spirit or you, <laughs> or you want to get some assets out of your estate, um, but your beneficiary is a child or, again, someone that you're worried about just handing them a large check, we will oftentimes use an irrevocable trust so that the money is out of your hands, okay? It's no longer revocable. You can't take it back. Um, so it's a completed gift for tax purposes in most cases. But, um, but rather than the money just going outright to someone, it goes to a trustee for their benefit. And the most simple uh, example would be, I wanna give some money to my grandchildren, but I don't want them to really get to use it until they uh, are in college, they'll use it for college, or I want them to get it when they're in their 30s or something to start a mm-hmm. business or, or that type of thing. So you might name uh, a friend, you could name uh, a parent, uh, you know, a, a, your child to be the trustee. That money would leave your hands, go to that trustee for the benefit of your, um, you know, your ultimate beneficiary. So that's one good use of an irrevocable trust. Sure. And so by by taking some money, let's say you take, I'm just going to, you know, grab a number. Let's say you take Mm $500,000, you know, cash, wherever it comes from, and you put it into this irrevocable trust for a certain purpose Mm -hmm. by placing the funds into the trust. Are there any, are there any immediate tax ramifications of doing that? So you'd be filing a gift tax return for the amount between $500,000 and $15,000. That's the taxable quote unquote taxable gift. But as we talked about, because the exemption is so high federally, you don't actually owe any money on that taxable gift. So no, no immediate tax ramifications. You need to, you need to track that. You need to, you need to uh, file a a gift tax return Return. Mm -hmm. uh, as part for that particular year, uh, but no, no immediate tax ramifications to either you or the, you know, potential beneficiaries. That's correct. Okay. And um, so the, the giving or gifting and charitable type planning. That's that's one use of irrevocable trust. The other, and probably the one that uh, we deal with more commonly, and you probably hear people ask you questions about in your practice, is, um, is the issue of Medicaid planning or asset protection planning. In other words, I'm concerned that if I have all these assets in my name and I end up in a long-term care setting, a nursing home or something like that later in life, that with the cost of that, you know, north of 10000 a month, mm. um, my assets are going to be depleted and my children are not going to inherit anything. And so people often ask for strategies or how do I deal with that fear? And one way to do it that you don't need an attorney for would be to try to fund it yourself through the purchase of a long-term care insurance policy or some other product like that, 
The other idea for certain people, not for everyone, is to try to use an irrevocable trust to move assets out of your name so that you would qualify sooner than you otherwise would for state benefits, Medicaid, or, or what's called mass health here in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Can we take a quick break? And, sure. Because and, I think there's, that one we could talk about for a little while. Yep. Um, so we actually have a caller. Uh, we have Eddie in Bourne. Eddie, can you hear us? Yes, thank you. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, it came as a pleasant surprise when you told me that the uh, the nationwide credit is now 11.7 for the state. Last I heard, it was 5.25 and going up with, uh, I think, some, some rate of inflation. Could you please tell me when that was changed and on what the circumstances were that allowed that to take place? Sure. It was uh, early in the Trump administration. It was one yeah, of the I first things they... Yeah, it was one of the first... I it, <laughs> it was one of the early tax changes that uh, went through probably in the first two years there when it was uh, Trump in the White House, and I think the Republicans right. had Congress. So they effectively doubled it from where it was uh, right. during the Obama okay. years. Yep. And now there's talk, um, as, as I, I know, mentioned, I of, of bringing it back to where we were. Yep. Right. We have the thieves in there who believe your money is their money. Well, sir, you've been a pleasure listening to just for that little bit of news. I, I don't know how I missed it reading the Wall Street Journal or Money Magazine, but thank you very much for uh, brightening my day. Uh, okay, you're welcome. All right, thanks, Eddie. Thank you. Thank you very Bye-bye. much. Bye. Bye. All right, so, all right. Irrevocable trust, uh, potentially a way to protect some money and or qualify an individual for state help should you know should you need nursing home care right so the threshold and i guess we have to talk a little bit about uh how this how it works so if you um are an elder and you need long-term care in a nursing home and you're past the point where you're sort of rehabbing medicare and most usual typical health insurance will cut off at that point Mm. and the system we have in the united states right now is you either privately pay or if you have no money to privately pay you qualify for government benefits it's medicaid program federally administered by the states and in massachusetts it's called mass health so let first for simplicity let's say that you're single you are not going to qualify for that mass health benefit until your assets are depleted down to about $2,000. So what that means is not that the state or the nursing home is going to come and seize all your assets. It's simply that you're going to be getting a bill every month that someone's going to have to pay. And usually once you've depleted your liquid assets, your cash, your retirement plans, that sort of thing, you see people having to sell uh, real estate and then use those proceeds. So if you um, live long enough in a nursing home needing acute enough care, you can you can burn through, um, you know, I don't know, $150,000, $200,000 a year, potentially, sure. I, I would say. Sure. And, um, and so people are worried about that. If you're married, it's a little bit different. Uh, if, you, if you are married and one spouse is still healthy and living in the community, uh, meaning still living in the home, the uh, state is not going to require that spouse to sell that home and sort of go out on the street. If you are, if you have a spouse, you can keep a primary residence, and you can also keep a certain amount of money over and above that. But still, you can have have to deplete quite a few assets before you get to that point. Right, and that number is like two hundred. It's even less. It's it's closer to one hundred thirty thousand. Okay. Is that, okay. Yeah. Plus the value of the of the real estate. Right. Okay. So. So people uh, want to pre-plan around that, and part of it is to try to move assets, you know, effectively out of your name, so that um, you meet the qualification standards. Right. Now, obviously, uh, the state is not going to allow everyone to do this the night before they go into a nursing home setting. And so this type of planning generally has to be done right now, five years 
prior to the application being filed for Mass Health. Any gifts yeah. made within that five-year period will result in some disqualification right. time. Right. So, and then, yeah. So, who, so, and they'll do some research on that, and they'll and they'll dig through files. And, That's right. and, and figure out what you've what you've done in the past. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, right now there's a five-year look back. Now, it, it, that's changed over the years, right? That look back period was something different. Right. I, I think prior to 2006, it was three years, and okay. it was a little bit easier to do. There's been talk, and I think some states may have even extended that beyond five years. Certainly, this is something that is... Uh, uh, you don't hear about it talked about politically too much, but at least in the administrative state, they're constantly looking for ways they can make this a little bit more challenging mm, for people. Right. Because obviously it's a it's a big line item in the budget, the uh you know, the Medicaid mass health bill. Sure. And that so that, that five year look back, is that uh is that a nationwide figure or is that a Massachusetts figure? I believe nationwide, you're required to have at least okay. a five-year look back. The Medicaid that's, program. Okay, so that's like the minimum, yeah. and then the states could uh, choose to make it longer if they if they right. wanted to. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. You know, I can't see it getting shorter. <laughs> no, I don't uh, either. As time goes on. Um, and the other thing I was going to mention is, you know, you talked about, you know, what this costs per year. You know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, plus or minus, right? For you know, custodial care. Right. And that's just today's dollars. Right. You know, so if you're you know, in your fifties or whatever now, I mean, I mean, this is going up at a, you know, a very fast clip, you know, much faster than, you know, typical inflation. And so right. you gotta, you gotta account for that, um, you know, go, looking forward as well, which is just a scary, a right. scary thing. So the old strategy that you used to see employed a lot was to simply, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn the house. Most people that are looking for this planning, their, their house, their real estate is their largest asset that they're trying to protect. I'm gonna turn the house over to my daughters. You know, I'm going to deed it to them and they'll let me live there. And um, that kind of goes back to the beginning of the show today when mm -hmm. we talked about the joint accounts and it's got a lot of the same risk. So nothing, uh, most daughters I'm sure would let you live there for the rest of your life and everything would be fine. But things could happen, you know, relationships could change, a daughter could get divorced. A daughter could have a bankruptcy, a car accident, all sorts of things could happen. And suddenly that situation uh, is, a, it w you know, was a big mistake and you're finding yourself sure. getting thrown out sure. of your house. The next step was a lot of people would do that deed uh, to the children, but they would retain a life estate, which means they would at least retain a legal right to live in the home for the rest of their lives so the children couldn't sell it out from underneath them. And that was employed a lot as well to try to get assets out of the name of the elders so that they would qualify sooner for care. What, you, what we use in our office and many attorneys do now is something known as the irrevocable income only trust. It's a, it's a little bit more protection for the elder in that the house is transferred into a trust. The trust provides that, that the elder has certain rights to the assets during their lifetime. And generally on something like real estate, it's simply the right to live there, okay? The principal value is now in the trust and that really belongs to the next generation or whoever you're, whoever you're leaving it to. So if you do that type of trust, you're effectively turning your house over to someone else as trustee and you're just retaining the right to live in that home for the rest of your life. If the home is sold, the money's no longer yours, okay? Because we ha we're, what we're trying to do is get that principal value, the equity in that home, out of your name so it doesn't have to be used to pay for your care. Right. And um, this type of trust planning um, is a little safer than the other alternatives that we talked about. It is complicated and, you know... Um, we would certainly talk to you about all the pros and cons because there it, it it's not for everyone it's not without uh drawbacks and um but you know some people are very concerned about this and and they really want to make sure that they've that their children receive something and if they have the fear that they will have a long nursing home stay this is an alternative for them um you know in in speaking with attorneys you know over the years you know every attorney has a different opinion about 
you know, when in somebody's life does this make sense? You know, you know, they don't want, you know, a lot of attorneys don't want to do it too early mm-hmm. um, because it, you know, that you lose some flexibility. Um, so I don't, I don't know if, you know, if you, Brian, or your firm has any kind of a general, you know, guideline as far as when, when, when that might make sense. Right. I've had people come into my office and they're in their fifties and they're still working and, I don't think at that sense, uh, at that time, it makes much sense to do it for mm-hmm. most people. Mm-hmm. Um, unless they told me there was some known health issue coming that we needed to get that five-year clock started. I see. Okay. If they just generically said, I heard about this, I think I want to do it, I might say, let's slow down. You're, you're still working. Um, and uh, let's think about this when you're retired and in your, you know, we, 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 no one knows what the next five years will bring. So there's no perfect answer to that. Right. But um, I don't want people to do it too early and end up in a situation where, you know, they've given their assets away to their children and they still might have 30 years of retirement to right. enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Because effectively you're now, if you, if you ever need any of that wealth back, you're asking somebody else for it and they don't have to give it to you. So, so yeah. right, and and as you alluded to earlier, you can you can still sell the property. You mm-hmm. know, if so, if you put your house into an irre- irrevocable trust, you yep. can still sell the house. You can sell the house. The trustees can buy another house buy another for you house. if you want to downsize or something like that. It's just that the the cash, you know, the idea that you're going to sell the house and use the money to travel the world with, well, no, no, not without the cooperation of a, a lot of different parties, primarily your beneficiaries, the children that right. you've left it to, right. And you mentioned, you know, you mentioned about, um, you know, this being an income-only trust. I mean, typically, uh, you know, typically your primary residence does not produce any income. Right. Um, but you could put other assets in this, a bank account, uh, an investment account, and you would, you, we can reserve, and usually for tax purposes, we do have the income paid out to you um, annually, but the principal and any growth on that principal capital gains type you know, is, is out. Um, so I had this question again recently, somebody was inheriting, uh, a home mm-hmm. that, that was in an, you know, irrevocable trust. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, my understanding regarding the taxation of that to, to the beneficiary mm-hmm. is that they would be paying capital gains on the basically the growth of the of the the house's value, but from the time it was put placed into the trust versus what it's sold for, is that yeah? This this gets a little complicated, but um, there is a way if the trust is drafted correctly from a tax perspective to still get get what's called the step up in basis okay. to the value okay. upon the death of the. Uh, okay, so it depends on how the trust is drafted. drafted. So that is so it's potentially there could be little to no tax Correct. Uh, based on. Okay, uh, uh, we have a caller. We have uh, David in Situate. Uh, David, can you hear us? Hey, Kirk, it's David. How you doing? Oh, the David. I'm good. How are the you? David, yes. Can I say your last name or not? <laughs> you can if you want. <laughs> David Tornelot from Situate. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> hey, David. How are we doing? Good. I just had a question. I met with a client, um, about, I think it was about six months ago. So father-son live in a primary residence, and um, son's disabled. And the father was concerned about because he his his spouse had passed away if he needed to go into a nursing home um and they hadn't had any planning in place at the moment would the son be forced to sell the house to cover the care if he went to a nursing home the uh, that's without planning at the moment the the nice thing david is the state does have certain exceptions and one of them is if a disabled child lives in the home. So in other words, the, the father should, if, if the only asset was the home, okay, the father would qualify for mass health without the disabled son having to sell that home. In other words, they, they, they'd preserve that asset for the disabled child. Okay, that's what I thought, but I yeah. wasn't sure about the answer. And if he had planning, whether it was a revocable trust or an irrevocable, the five-year look-back still comes into play with either one, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's why it's always important before we do this planning. I like to talk to people about whether they have any of the things that would help qualify for an exception, such as a disabled uh, um, child like that. Mm. Right. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. Yeah, thanks for the question, David.
Yep, have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. The other, um, the other thing that comes up a bit is that, you know, certain people come in and certain other people come in to talk about um, long-term care, or not long-term care, but this type of trust, and they may already have a long-term care policy in place. Um, and so that maybe negates or at least changes the discussion. The other thing is people will come in and they might have a $2 million IRA and they want to do this type of planning. And we have to talk about you know, the only way to put an IRA like that into an irrevocable trust is to change the nature of the IRA, which means a big tax hit. So I mean, it's not, yeah. this isn't for everyone. Yeah. And um, it's it's certainly not one size fits all type planning. Yeah. So, you know, just to be clear, yeah, if, if, you, if all you had is an IRA and you wanted to protect it, you know, right. from a nursing home or, or creditors or whatever, uh, in order to, to put it into a trust of some kind, you have to take it out of the IRA, you know, realize all of that as taxable income, and then and then whatever's left is what you're putting into the trust, and that's a, you know, that's a big a big bite, to, you know, to potentially take out of that, and that I don't know that that makes sense in in a lot of cases. In many cases, it doesn't, and it's becoming more of an issue um, because the next generation that's aging, um, a lot of their wealth is like we talked about earlier in this type of uh, investment, this retirement type plan. Yeah, so I think you know, and people that we talk with, and um, you know. If you're thinking about an irrevocable trust, uh, you know, perhaps putting your home, that's probably, if, if you're going to go that route, that's probably what makes sense for most mm -hmm. folks is putting the home because you can still use the asset. You can still live there. Right. Uh, you can still live there. Um, you know, potentially, yeah, you are giving up the equity, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, but that, you know, if, if you have other assets, then that's probably okay. Uh, but obviously something to, to speak with an attorney so that you fully understand all the pros and cons and and, and what you're giving up uh, by doing that. Um, so, yeah. Right. Um, all right. We've got about two minutes left. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so taking income. That was maybe one last question I had. So if we were to take, say, if somebody has financial, if cash, mm -hmm. you know, they've got a couple hundred thousand dollars that they they're comfortable they don't need, mm -hmm. which is the big decision, right? Because right. if you're going to put that money into an irrevocable trust, you got to be okay that that money is potentially gone forever. Right. Um, but I think you said that you can you can still have income provisions where if that money's invested, say in you know stocks and bonds, mm -hmm. you can take the income that's generated from those uh, investments and still the principal is still protected. That's correct. Uh, okay, but yeah. there's still but there's the five year look back. Um, yeah. All right. Oh, the music means we're just about out of time. Uh, Brian, why don't you give out your info one more time? Sure. Again, it's Brian Fecto, uh, Delaney and Muncie in Plymouth, and 508-746-2200 is my number. Delaney-Muncie.com is our website and uh, would be happy to meet with anyone that wants to discuss this in more detail. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for, thanks for our callers today and our questions. Uh, this is Kirk Reed from McNamara Financial. Uh, have a great weekend.